As a golden orange sunset lit up the clouds, Alison parked behind a large van, ten houses down from the bungalow. Dog walkers meandered along the footpath, returning from the off-leash area at Curl Curl Beach. Tony's cloak and dagger place was a weatherboard house, neither old nor new, nothing flashy, simply comfortable, the sort of bungalow where the same family might have lived happily for decades. From his street, she could hear the gentle lull of waves, the happy shouts of kids playing. She could taste salt in the air. This seaside suburb didn't have the bush backdrop of Wirriga. Everything was out in the open. Old weatherboard shacks from the 1950s sat alongside brand new mansions of brick and glass. And yet, Alison had seen nothing. Watching, waiting, four weeks now, and still the woman hadn't appeared. A middle-aged couple stood at the bus stop, staring at their phones rather than talking to each other. In the fading light, their faces glowed blue with the reflection from the screens. Alison checked her own phone, pulling up Facebook so that she didn't look so suspicious sitting in the car. She read the article that Nadia had posted about empowering women to create their best lives. Shona had linked to a book review, so she clicked through to the blog, tried to focus on the words while peeking up at the house every few seconds. A man came out of the place next to Tony's. This morning, she'd asked her son outright, what's Dad up to this weekend? Not much. Alison knew she shouldn't be here. She wasn't a crazy stalking ex, but Tony's secrecy had sent her into an obsessive frenzy. After yesterday's embarrassment with Elena, she had to know. Last night, Alison had trawled through Tony's social media again. A new female friend had popped up on Facebook. This woman looked so ordinary, brown bob, white shirt, dark jacket, small smile on her ordinary face. How dare Tony turn my life upside down for this ordinary woman? It wasn't logical, but if Tony had to leave her, shouldn't it be for a glamazon, a six-foot goddess with a flat stomach and golden tresses? And then, in the midst of her anger, Alison had to laugh, as if a six-foot bronzed goddess would want Tony, 51 and showing every year, a slight paunch, only just six foot himself, crooked teeth, hair in his nose and his ears, balding at the temples, and smart and funny and kind and caring and hers. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading Magazine is a monthly publication dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. My name's Greg Dobbs. Today, I'm talking to Petronella McGovern about her new book, The Good Teacher. Petronella, welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here. First up, I've got to congratulate you on being shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Crime Fiction Awards. That's for your first novel, Six Minutes. How does that feel? Uh, it's just amazing. I really, I was so excited. And, you know, when you're writing a novel, you never think about winning awards or anything. Well, not that I've won, but shortlisted for an award. It was amazing. It was really a great feeling. So you're in pretty good company. Peter Temple, Peter Corris, along with some more recent winners, including Candace Fox, Solari Gentle. I suppose that makes you feel even better. It does. And they're all amazing authors. I think crime for Australia is going through a fabulous moment. The Good Teacher, it's not one out of the box, so to speak. It's a really intense psychological thriller. 
A lot of the action happens in the heads of the characters, especially Alison and Maz too. What's happening to Alison through the course of the book? Well, Alison is forced into a midlife crisis. Her husband suddenly leaves her and she doesn't really understand why. She's a school teacher. She's known in the community as the good teacher. And her husband is a lawyer, so he's also upstanding in the community. And suddenly her life disintegrates when he leaves the marriage. And he moves to a house down by the beach and her teenage son follows him down there. So Alison is used to being uh, a carer, a wife, a mother and a school teacher and suddenly half of her life has disappeared. So she is struggling to find her way and her salvation, so to speak, comes in the form of a new student in her class, Gracie, who needs a lot of care. And she puts all her love into Gracie. And Alison really is not your average crime fiction character. Rather than eccentric sleuths or journalists with a checkered past or a flawed or jaded police officer, your characters, or, or heroes we could even call them, are more down-to-earth, everyday people. What kinds of freedoms do these kinds of characters allow you as opposed to the more traditional characters we might find in crime fiction? I think in traditional crime fiction there's often a lack of that domestic setting. So I'm really interested in bringing homes and families into the crime environment, although you find in The Good Teacher you don't actually know what the crime is for a long time. It's something you need to work out. Um, I like surprises in a book, so I hope the readers enjoy the surprise of working out what's happening. But in the book we see the families behind the scenes in their homes and we get to see what's happening. And I guess I'm interested in in the bigger picture of crime, what happens to victims and how they cope, but also criminals, what makes them do the things they do. And the plot lines that you follow in The Good Teacher and also in Six Minutes, they're plot lines that revolve around children. What does that aspect allow you to bring to your stories? I suspect I'm writing my worst fears as a parent, really, Greg. I think, you know, the one of the worst fears as a parent is to have a child go missing, which is what happened in Six Minutes. Uh, that happened to me briefly, but it was okay. And and readers came up and told me their stories about when they'd lost their children. And thankfully, all of them had worked out, but it's that fear, that moment of not knowing. And in The Good Teacher, there are two parents who are going through a terrible time. And one is her marriage breakup, Alison, and her son has gone to live with her husband and is gradually breaking away from her. And the other parent is Luke, whose daughter, Gracie, is sick, and he's trying to work out the best treatment for her. And I, I suppose this story is really about the disintegration of Alison's family life, but also of her mental state. And more than one of the characters in The Good Teacher is going through a process of disintegration. What what draws you to this aspect of the human condition? Well, I think when everything's going well, we feel good and we can put ourselves out there and be kind to everyone. But sometimes when things are falling apart, it's harder to look after each other and it's harder to see beyond what's going on in your own head and Alison's in this state although she is she is kind and she's turning her kindness elsewhere but possibly they're not for the reasons we think they might be for we're not really sure so I guess in a state of disintegration I'm interested in how their actions change and their behavior changes and they do things that they normally wouldn't do. It's not all bad news but in an age when the issue of mental health is something that's really front of mind and is being studied, the good teacher comes across almost like a, a case study in mental health. Do you have some sort of background in 
that area or just some kind of morbid fascination for the inner workings of the mind? Well, I'm always fascinated by people and I think it's interesting. We never know what each other's thinking and everybody has a different take on a situation. You know, everyone brings their own bias or their own agenda or their own ideas about a situation. Uh, I don't have a background in mental health, but I have... I have teenagers and there's a lot of information at school about mental health, which is great because I feel we didn't have so much when I was at school. And in the pandemic, I think there's a real focus on mental health in lockdown and and generally, you know, the state of the world is making people more anxious. So I'm interested in all those aspects coming together and ways of looking at inside people's brains without being a neurosurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> You really play with the reader's mind. You plant these red herrings. You put in dead ends. There's false trails. People are trying to guess who done it. But like you said, we don't even really know what the crime is yet. Do you get some sort of perverse pleasure from keeping your reader in eternal suspense? Or is that simply the essence of crime fiction? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I do love a book. As I said, I love a book that surprises me. And I really enjoy not knowing where it's going. Uh, the red herrings are interesting because it's um, it's not always deliberate and sometimes it is obviously and sometimes it's it's plotted but sometimes readers just make up their own red herrings because they're trying to figure it out and one of the readers in six minutes came up with a whole storyline that I hadn't thought of so I love it when readers bring their own imagination to the story. Sounds like the idea for your next novel. <laughs> Great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to it. Part of this story revolves around this idea of people responding to each other about not just in the individual sense, but about communities coming together, about communities supporting individuals through difficult times. Is that a reflection of these times or something that is embedded in your story? The original story had a lot more of the bushfires in it and I was writing it, editing it while the bushfires were happening over summer. So that really played into my thoughts. And in fact, six minutes I'd written about the Canberra bushfires. And when I was young, we'd sort of been in bushfires when I was growing up. So I think bushfires really are a fear that I that I have. And obviously we see it around us in what's happened over January. But then with the pandemic, I'd set my, my book to reflect the bushfires and the pandemic came along and I had to edit the book because they were flying to Chicago in May, which wasn't going to happen in, in real life. So... Well, I was editing in March and I just felt the, um, I could see how people were coming together as a community in these terrible times. And also some communities in America, for example, were going the opposite way. And I do feel that in real life, uh, the kindness and compassion of human nature will win out and community is so important in these difficult times. Well, that's a really positive note to finish on. So congratulations on the new book and congratulations on the shortlisting for six minutes. And thanks for joining me on the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Thanks, Greg. It's been wonderful. I've been talking to Petronella McGovern about her new book, The Good Teacher. It's published by Alan and Unwin and it's available at goodreadingmagazine.com.au and all good bookstores. My name's Greg Dobbs and thanks for listening. <laughs>